Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is Bookin, brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted independent bookstore. My guest today is New York Times bestselling author Alan Gratz, author of several award-winning and acclaimed books for young readers, including Refugee, Grenade, a project one zero six five. Is that how I yeah. say it? Yeah. Right. Prisoner B three zero eight seven and Code of Honor. His new book is Allies, published by our friends at Scholastic Press. Alan, thank you for joining me. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Alan, before the break, uh, we were talking about Samira Zaydane and Operation Tortoise. Samira is from Algeria, and many of the members of the French Resistance are resistant to supporting Samira due to her heritage. Can you explain this tension between the French soldiers and someone, Samira, whose family is from Algeria? Sure. Yeah, so Algeria was a French colony uh, right before World War II, and um, they didn't have any rights. They couldn't vote. Uh, they had no representation in France. Uh, they they also didn't have their own government I, I, within Algeria. They were totally ruled by France. So they weren't Algerian, even though they were from Algeria, and they weren't French because they didn't have French citizenship. So they were really sort of stateless. It was this weird sort of limbo that they were in. And they had already been uh, ra- sort of rattling their swords and saying, hey, we'd really like to be independent. Um, we had already seen um, independence from a lot of different places, India and, and around the world, that where they had been um, colonies of, of European powers and, and were being um, set free, and Algeria wasn't. Uh, then the Nazis invade France. The Nazis invade northern Africa, and uh, everything changed for everybody. Uh, Nazi Germany occupied both uh, Algeria and France, and the Algerians were like, okay, great. Um, we wanted to get our independence from France. That didn't happen. Now we're not French anymore. We're German, like the Nazis occupy us. And they thought, well, we've got a better chance of getting our independence from France than Nazi Germany. So we will throw our lot in in World War II with uh, the French, and we will fight with them to help free France from Nazi rule. And they said, if we do this, will you give us our independence? And uh, France said, sure. Um, as I alluded to earlier, they did not get their independence after World War II. Um, in fact, France just went back to the way things were. They didn't even give them French citizenship. And uh, Algeria was forced to fight a really bloody civil war, uh, a war of, of independence, let's call it, uh, from France. So during World War II, you had these uh, Muslim Algerians who were a part of the French resistance. And they were viewed with suspicion by French people who were totally questioning their motivation. They're like, are you, are you really fighting to free France, or are you fighting, fighting to free Algeria? And many of the, the Algerian resistance fighters would say, like, does it matter? We're fighting the Nazis. We're going to all be free, and then we figure things out. Um, but a lot of people still worried that the Algerians were uh, self-motivated, that they had their own uh, interests here and that they weren't fighting for France. Um, so well, some of the French... Uh, people viewed the Algerian resistance fighters with suspicion. Um, they didn't know what their clear motivations were here. Uh, and the French were like, no, you need to be fighting for France. And the Algerians were like, well, we, we are, but we're also fighting for ourselves. Can we not do, can, can we not do both? Uh, but some French people had a real problem with them doing both. Um, one of the big problems with the French resistance in terms of their strength 
during the war and and after the the invasion uh, or sorry but so before let's say before the invasion of Normandy and afterward was there there's disunity uh, if that's a word um, there they weren't very unified in fact they were so disorganized that the Allies did not bring them in to the planning for D-Day because they were worried that if they did that that news of it would leak out to the Germans. They didn't. They didn't. They weren't worried that the French resistance was working for the for the Nazis, but they just knew that their communications weren't weren't very well coded. They 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 just they didn't have a, a a system. It was a lot of different smaller guerrilla groups fighting the Nazis, which is what what happens if your nation is conquered and you have to spread into the hills and the forest. And they didn't have a great system. Um, and so you had some people who were totally down with the Algerians helping them out, and it didn't matter. And you had other people who were very nationalistic and nativistic and said, no, 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 you you need to be French or nothing. So um, it was a complicated thing, and I try to get at it a little bit here. But I also w- really wanted to show kids that it wasn't all French people who were fighting in the French resistance. Thank you. And next we jump to Operation Tonga and the Canadian Parachute Battalion, then on page 137, we finally jump back into Wasid um, and D. Uh, can you talk to us about the format of this novel and why you chose to tell it episodically, jumping around from operation to operation and from the perspective of different characters? Sure. So um, I'll go back to Refugee and Grenade for a second. Refugee and Grenade are both told from multiple points of view, with Refugee three different kids, with Grenade uh, two different characters. And... In both of those books, I go back and forth, chapter to chapter, between the characters. In Refugee, it goes jo- a chapter from Joseph, a chapter from Isabel, a chapter from Mahmoud. And then in Grenade, you get um, a chapter uh, from the American side, you get a chapter from the Okinawan side. You go back and forth, you get Ray, then Hideki, Ray, then Hideki. And um, in this book, I thought about doing that. I thought about say- saying, let's show all the things that are happening concurrently, um, and go back and forth between the characters. Then as I was starting to do my research and really outlining this, I realized there were going to be a couple of problems with that. Number one, D-Day really was a number of different operations, some of which ran concurrently, but many of which ran back to back to back to back to back. So you have the, the French resistance working the whole time, but really starting at midnight before anybody else is going. Then you have Operation Tonga, which is the paratroopers um, from, from Canada, from the United States, from England, and different areas dropping in. Uh, and that's around 1.30 or 2 o'clock in the morning. Then you've got the, the ships at sea firing around 4 o'clock in the morning. You've got the invasion itself at 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning. Um, then you've got things happening on the beach. So some things are happening, happening concurrently, but other things are stacked like a domino, you know, is like dominoes, and, and, and one thing leads to another. And I realized I couldn't really go back and forth between all of them. Plus, I ended up with six different point-of-view characters in Allies. It's the most point-of-view characters that I had written. Um, well, no, I, I take that back. In Brooklyn Nine, one of my earlier books, I did do nine point-of-view characters, but each of them had their own short story, and there was no overlap at all. It was just many. It was nine different time periods, but but pretty discrete time periods. There wasn't much overlap. In this book, because it all took took place in one day, it's twenty four hours in Allies, um, but six different characters. At first, I'd wanted to go back and forth, and I thought that's just going to be awfully confusing. It's going to be a lot of characters to keep up with, um, and they're not always working concurrently. So I backed off of that, and I said, what if I just tell the story of 
one character all the way through, one character that we re- really return to, and that's D and Sid. Sid is with him most of the time. So D and Sid, D is the main point of view character in the main storyline. Sid is his buddy in in his same um, in the same unit, and and we see the two of them all the way through the book. Um, and I thought, if this is that iconic scene of D-Day is those soldiers coming off those boats and charging up that beach. And I thought, what if I view that as this is the main story of D-Day, landing at the beach, driving the Germans out, right? That's the core of D-Day. But what are all the other things that had to happen to help D and Sid move up that beach and off of it? So what are the things that happened beforehand that prepared the way for them? What are the things that happened while they were on the beach? This is when we get into the the medic. This is when we get into the tank drivers. So this is when we get into the things that are happening concurrently. Um, what are the things afterward that that happened? This is um, you know when we talk about the the reporter and and the the women who are working as me- as uh, as nurses and the, and and that sort of thing um, at toward the end of the day. Um, so I decided. It, I'll, I'll break this up and I'll tell each of the stories discreetly. We'll have a story from Samira. We'll have a story from uh, from James. I'm trying to think of the order. I think it goes Samira, then James. Uh, and then, like you said, we come back to D because that's when they hit the beaches. Uh, I think then we have a story from uh, Henry. I think that's when we get the medic story. Um, we come back to D and, and wrap up his story. And we, then we come back to the women who are at the end of the day. Anyway, so we, we, I may have dropped somebody in there. Um, but we, we go – I wanted to show basically D and Sid coming up that beach and then and then coming back to them at important moments, but otherwise dropping out to tell essentially a short story about each of these other characters and how what they're doing – we can see what they're doing and how it will help D and Sid with their quest. Sometimes they actually meet them live. Henry, the medic, does run into the characters, um, sometimes as does um, – you know, the, the British tank commander, uh, or the tank pilot, rather. Um, some of them, they never meet. Uh, they never meet Samira. They uh, Well, I take that back. Uh, maybe toward the end. But but at the beginning, and certainly during the action, they don't. Um, so anyway, I, I wanted to tell all these different stories, and I realized I couldn't do it the way I had done it in Refugee and Grenade. It was too much to go back and forth, too many characters, too many different times and places. So... Then it was going to be a series of short stories, but connected by D and Sid all the way through. Thank you so much. And listeners, we are going to take a break for a word from our sponsors, and then I will be right back with Alan Gratz. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. Thank you, Alan. Um, I also want to talk about the challenges inherent in writing a historical novel. As you mentioned in the afterword, 
you took a few liberties with the uh, historical situations, particularly as related to the timelines of the stories you were focusing on. Can you talk about the challenge of staying true to a historical moment while also needing to stay true to the story you were telling? Absolutely. Uh, somebody famous. I need to ever. I use this quote a lot, and I need to look up who said it. Like I think everybody says Mark Twain said everything. So let's let's say Mark Twain until I can look it up. Uh, but somebody once said, "Never let the truth get in the way of a good story." And I love that expression. And I kind of remember that. I try to remember that as I'm writing. I write fiction. Uh, I write World War II thrillers. And but I also write for middle grade readers. I write for ages 8 to 14. That's my core audience. I get readers who are a little bit younger than that. I get readers who are a little bit older than that. I get readers who are adults. But, um, but my core audience is middle school and upper elementary, that sort of thing. So like grades 5, 6, 7, 8, maybe 9. And I'm trying to write a thrilling story. I'm trying to write something that's fun. But I also know that that age group is getting handed books by their librarians, by their teachers, by their parents. Um, and if I'm writing something about World War II, those gatekeepers, for lack of a better word, I don't mean that in a, in a pejorative way, those gatekeepers will say, well, they want those books to be as, uh, as, as authentic and as true to the real situation as possible. They don't want to put a book in a kid's hand that's about World War II where I've just made a ton of stuff up, right? So I am writing historical fiction. I want to get the history as right as I can. But I'm also writing fiction, and I, I have to pay attention to the story. Um, so like in Project 1065, for example, I, I, meant, I, I mentioned Operation Paperclip earlier uh, about the, the getting the, the Nazi soldiers, uh, sorry, Nazi scientists out of Germany at the end of the war. That happened a little bit later than I presented in Project 1065. It really happened. But I wanted to use it as a part of my story. So I just moved up the time period a little bit. So Operation Paperclip is real. And the, the activities German scientists out of Germany was a real thing, but I just wanted to make sure that um, people understood it happened a little bit later. So in my author's note, I'll often say, I've been, I've been time a little bit here. And as you've said, you've read through the author's note. Um, with with D-Day, uh, for example, uh, they didn't really make it to Bayou until um, maybe midday, like 10 o'clock in the morning or, or noon the next day on June 7th, 1944. I have my characters reach it by midnight because I thought it would be really cool to have my story go from midnight to midnight on June 6, 1944. So did they really make it to Bayou at midnight? No. Did they make it to Bayou pretty soon? Yeah, like within the next four or five hours, you know, or something like that. Um, I guess more like 10 hours. But, but it, you know, they, they, um, they made it within the next day. And so I just condensed time a little bit. I'll do that. I'll combine some characters that every now and then. Uh, all my main characters are fictional, and I just drop them into real situations. Um, but I always have to remember when I'm writing these books that if I try to stick to history 100%, that's, that's writing historical nonfiction. And there's definitely a place for that, and those books are amazing. But I'm writing historical fiction, and so I get to take a little bit of license with history, a little bit of license with time and place, uh, that sort of thing. I don't want to go too wild. I don't want to say that we had lasers at D-Day. You know, I don't, I don't want to say that uh, somebody landed at D-Day who didn't land at D-Day. Um, I, I don't want to make stuff up like that. I want to tell a story within the confines of, of the real history. I want to, and that's actually the fun of historical fiction for me. I love taking the puzzle pieces of what really happened and saying, now how can I tell the most exciting, coolest story within that? So 
I feel like I get a little bit of latitude, but I'm always really clear in the author's note to point out to people, I took a couple of liberties, and here's where I did it. Thank you so much. Um, You alluded earlier to the issue surrounding this question and to the character Henry, and I want to ask you about Henry, who is a medic in the novel, uh, who is black, uh, which is a very big deal to many of the soldiers in Normandy. Um, Can you talk to us about the character of Henry, why he is important, and do you think if Henry were alive right now in 2019, he would see any of the progress he was hoping for? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. So let's start with um, why Henry's in there. Uh, Henry's in there because when I learned about D-Day, and when I have seen depictions of D-Day, All the depictions I've seen are of white guys running off those boats, white soldiers uh, running up the beach. And that's what things looked like at 6.30 and 7.30 in the morning. Like, that is not an inaccurate depiction. Nobody is uh, whitewashing D-Day in that that moment, right? If you're telling—if you're showing the first time that soldiers hit the beach and and got shot at by Germans, it's all white. It's all white. The thing is that D-Day wasn't all white. And that there were black battalions who were dropped off at D-Day. Their story comes a little bit later. And so because I was able to tell 24 hours of D-Day and not just the two or three hours of that initial invasion, I had room to tell that story and I wanted to tell that story. Because I felt like when I was, when every time I've seen something about D-Day, I just didn't see black soldiers there. And they were there and I thought that was a disservice not to tell that story. So, um... The way it works is, just to to summarize it, uh, the United States Army was segregated during World War II. There were black soldiers. There were white soldiers. They didn't serve together. Of course, the black soldiers had white lieutenants, uh, and the the white soldiers would never have had black uh, uh, leaders and lieutenants. But... Uh, but in terms of the, the the privates and corporals, their their units didn't uh, they were they were uh, segregated. So the Americans sent uh, white soldiers to the beach at six thirty and seven thirty, and those waves and waves of soldiers coming up off the beach. And the United States Army thought that by around ten o'clock in the morning we would be up and off the beaches. And so they planned at ten o'clock in the morning to send in the black battalions. Um, one in particular was a black barrage balloon battalion. It was one of the few battalions that that had weapons, that was trained also to fight. Their main mission was to, to raise up those big barrage balloons that we, like if you've ever seen pictures of the London Blitz and all those big fat balloons that were hovering in the sky. When I was, uh, like bef- before I read about this, I didn't really understand what those were for. I, I saw the pictures, but I was like, why is a balloon going to scare off an airplane? It's not the balloon, it's the big steel cable that's connected to it that's the danger for airplanes. As airplanes fly underneath them, they don't see those cables in the dark or, or even in, in the light. They, and if they hit one of those, it'll just totally shear off one of their wings. These planes are not built um, to, to withstand that kind of impact up in the air, and it would wreck those planes. The, the, the black support staff were supposed to get there and build the headquarters and everything on the beach, um, and they thought that by 10 o'clock in the morning we would be up and off the beach. We weren't up and off the beach until 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, but the Army delivered these soldiers right on time. So um, 
all these white soldiers with their rifles, they're all hunkered down, that many people are dead and, or wounded on the beach. They're hiding, they're, they're, they're caught in this German crossfire. And these new boats run up and the, 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 the door drops down and this black battalion has these huge balloons hanging like clipped to their belts because they were already inflated. They've got all their gear, like the winches and things they were going to use to raise them up and, and everything. And they're immediately getting shot at by the Germans because the battle isn't over. So they cut loose their balloons really quick. They drop all their gear. They grab their rifles and they start fighting right alongside the white soldiers. And they served with real honor and distinction that day. And um, it didn't matter that they were black and that the other soldiers were white. They were all trying to survive. They all helped each other. They were all trying to stop the Nazis. They were trying to fight the Nazis. So it was one of the real first examples of black soldiers and white soldiers fighting alongside each other for the American army. Um, and the American army was like, wow, this... This was no problem at all. And very soon after that, um, the, the United States Army desegregated. The Army desegregated before the nation did, uh, before the schools did in, in the United States. Um, they realized this wasn't an issue long before anybody else did. Um, and um, so I wanted to tell the story of these black soldiers and also the black medics. The, the black battalion had its own medics, and they were there to help the black soldiers. But, of course, they get dropped off on the beach, and black soldiers are getting shot, and white soldiers are getting shot. And if you're a doctor, the funny thing about doctors is they help anybody that needs help. And so the black medics were helping white soldiers, and the white medics were helping black soldiers, and everybody was helping each other. And some of these medics did really heroic work running up and down that beach for, for hours, for days, until, uh, into the next day, helping people and getting people to safety and, and, and uh, saving lives. And I felt like th this is a story that's been told in, in some adult nonfiction um, but it's not off. Kids don't often see this in pictures of D-Day. Um, so I wanted to be, to make sure that I showed that it wasn't just white soldiers running up off the beach. There were black soldiers there too, and they fought incredibly hard. Yeah. And then, um, to continue on that question, um, Henry, do you think if he were alive right now in 2019, he would see any of the progress he was hoping for? Right, right, right. So would Henry, would Henry see any of the progress that he'd been fighting for? Some, but not everything, certainly. Um, we've, made, we've made progress. Um, we've, made, we've made great strides. The segregation is gone, uh, at least uh, officially and institutionally, it's gone. Um, do we still sort of self-segregate? Yeah. Um, are are um, black Americans still... Um, still persecuted and and do they face prejudice of course yes and um like th this is something that we still have a long long way to go um the whole black lives matter movement is more important now uh it, it, it's 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 as important as it was during the civil rights era it's just under a different slogan um and we're seeing that we really haven't come as far as we as we want to we haven't come very far at all so I think that uh, this character was based on a guy named Waverly Woodson who's passed away now. Uh, I fictionalized that character. Um, but I think that he and other soldiers, uh, black soldiers from World War II, would have to look at the United States and say, well, yeah, we've made some progress. Um, now black and white soldiers serve alongside each other, and, and, um, uh, and black and white folks do things together in all walks of life, um, it, besides the military. But boy, we've still got a long way to go. And I think that some of those soldiers would have to look back and say, we haven't got this figured out yet. 
Like, really? Like, that was the 1940s, and, and, and it was 75 years ago, and we haven't got this figured out yet. So I think there's got to still be a lot of disappointment. There would have to be a lot of disappointment from somebody like, like Henry in the present day. Thank you, Alan. Um, finally, as promised earlier, I want to return to baseball. Um, on page 223, Sid says... 30 years from now, me and D here are going to be taking the train back and forth from New York to Philly to watch the Dodgers and the Athletics and the World Series. What would Sid and D say if they knew that in 1974 their World Series prediction would come true, but instead of taking a train from Brooklyn to Philadelphia to see the Dodgers and A's, they would need to take a train from Los Angeles to Oakland? Yeah, thanks. Uh, you're maybe one of the few people who caught that little in-joke. Um, I... I definitely picked those two because I wanted to to show how things change. I wanted to talk about how this is 75 years ago, and in that time, um, lots of things changed for the United States. The Brooklyn Dodgers go west, the Philadelphia Athletics go west, and then go west again. Uh, I think they went west to Kansas City, and then they went west again to Oakland. And, and they went west like much like the United States did. We kept, we were already the United States. We were already expanded all the way across um, to the West Coast. But, but the population began to move more and more out there. Um, and so I had a little bit of fun with that. And you're the first person who's caught that. I appreciate that. I worked hard for that little joke. Um, but yes, uh, I liked the idea that these two guys are going to go back home and they think everything is going to be the same. Right, everything is just going to be like it was, and that's my little way of saying it will be similar, but it's going to change. Like everything changes, um, and so uh, it was just a, a little in joke for me to say, yeah, the United States has still got some growing to do, and some expanding to do, and some um, some changing to do, and it will. Um, and as we just discussed with Henry, uh, sometimes we haven't changed enough. Sometimes we haven't we haven't gone as far as we need to. Um, but in other ways, the United States has grown and expanded and, and, and matured, let's put it that way, in, in really, really good ways. And so um, it was just a little way for me to say, like, have these two characters think, oh, we're fighting this war, and then everything is going to get back to normal, and it's going to be just the way it was. And it's like, well, yes and no. Yes and no. Thank you very much, Alan. Listeners, I have been speaking with Alan Gratz, the author of Allies, published by our friends at Scholastic Press. Alan, thank you for joining me. Thanks, it was a real pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Alan Gratz for joining me. Signed copies of Allies can be purchased in-store at Quail Ridge Books and online at www.quailridgebooks.com while supplies last. Our sponsor is Libro.fm Audiobooks. Please go to Libro.fm and enter the promo code Bookin, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get three months of audiobooks for the price of one and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'.